Can we pray and ask God to help us understand his word this morning? Lord Jesus, we surrender to what you want to do. We've sang songs about wanting you, not wanting blessings, God. More than anything, we want you. We want your word. So speak to us, God, and illuminate it to our understanding. Help us to see. Let your spirit move, God. Let it not just be the preaching of your word, but the moving of your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, have your way in our midst. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated this morning. Before I get into too much of the message, I have a quick video that um, if Charles, yeah, if you could grab those lights for me. This video is uh, probably about three or four minutes long. It's not too long, but it'll give you a little backdrop of the city that we're going to be looking at here this morning. working? Okay. Maybe we're not going to have a video this morning. Yes, we can. Is it playing on Easy Worship, just not on the thing? You can sometimes save the schedule, close it, reopen it, and it works. <laughs> when you need something to work, right? It does, this was the problem last week. I needed the microphones to work, and they were giving me trouble today. It's the computer. Well, all right. We'll just move on. If there was a city that was pagan, it was Pergamum. If there was a city where you wanted to worship a false god, and to them they weren't false, it was just, it, you know, you had your pick. You could pick and choose the kind of god that you wanted to, to, to worship, to serve, and, and you could really... Uh, you know, hop from one to the other. It was very common. It was not uh, odd or strange for that to be the case. It was a city of extreme paganism. Four to five temples uh, to the Roman emperor himself. I and mean, that's, that's a lot. You know, you think about today having four or five different churches of different denominations and different flavors, even of different religions altogether in a city is not altogether strange or odd or weird, but in those days, you know, to have four to five temples of to the same God in a city was, it, it, it really did show, okay, here we go, all right, maybe this will work this time. Is That's it going to go? Empire. Pergamum was exactly the right Okay, place so you'll have to, to turn be. up computer. Nearly every major deity had a temple here. Okay, it would be like going to Hollywood. <laughs> And in Hollywood, you can take a star tour. They put you in a little van, and you drive through these exclusive neighborhoods and see where all the important re people really live. Coming to Pergamum, in terms of worship, it's exactly like that. Um, no matter what you desired, or what you needed, or what you dreamt for, the gods would offer here to fulfill that for you. Pergamum? was exactly the right zip code to be in. The array of gods and goddesses in this town was impressive. Uh, right over this hill here, still existing, is the ancient altar to Zeus. Zeus was the king of Mount Olympus, where all the gods and goddesses dwelt. 
Uh, so he was the king of kings. Uh, Zeus was the god of the sky, of lightning and thunder, and would use lightning against his enemies. It's said that he consorted with mortals and gods and goddesses. Well, if you needed something done, <laughs> that was the place to go. He had all the power. But maybe you came to Pergamum for pleasure. Then why not go to the temple of Dionysus? Uh, he was the god of wine and revelry. Uh, you would go there and participate in the festivities, get drunk with everyone else, participate in the orgies. Sometimes the frenzy was so, so strong that it would end up in the taking of human life. Going to that temple was like, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> or going to New Orleans for the Mardi Gras. But if you're in need of food, need of a good crop, then you want to go to the temple of the goddess of Demeter. Uh, she was the one who could guarantee you food on your table and a wonderful crop at the end of the season. Maybe you're sick. Then here in Pergamum was the temple to Asclepius, the god of healing. It was one of the major spots for healing in the world. Pilgrims came from all over to come to this temple. And in this temple, it was the snakes that did the healing. Um, the priests of the temple would often put people in a trance. They would go to sleep, and, and then they would get a vision of what was wrong with them, and they could take it to the doctor and tell the doctor, and he would try to somehow medicate it. Uh, in an even stranger ritual, they would often put the sick people in a large room at night that's pitch black. And in the middle of the night, in their deep trance-like sleep that had been induced on them, they would release the snakes to crawl over their bodies in a ritual of healing. Interestingly, even today, the medical symbol that we see is a rod with snakes wound around it. It dates right back to that hospital here in Pergamum. Or maybe you need wisdom. You just don't know what to do. Then come to the temple of Athena, the goddess of wisdom, the goddess who would understand and form great military strategies for Rome to win its wars. Or if you wanted to affirm that Caesar was Lord of Lords, the savior of your life, granting you safety and peace, then you would come to the temple of the imperial cult up on the top of the mountain, the temple to Trajan. This was the scene at Pergamum. And if you were a follower of Jesus Christ and you refused to bow the knee, it was a good thing for you to hear what Jesus said at the beginning of the letter when he said, I know the place where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And so, as you can imagine what it would be like to be part of the church in Pergamum, uh, like today, you know, it's, it's interesting to compare and contrast. Today, if you go to a particular church, you're not necessarily persecuted or taken advantage of or mistreated because you attend that church. In fact, you can pretty much go to whatever place of worship you want today, and it's not odd or strange, but to 
to neglect to worship at one of these temples was to almost represent and signal to the culture and to the city that you were, you were a curse to that region and that area. The church was led by a man by the name of Antipas, whom Jesus mentions in his letter. He said in verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. As you can see, it was the center of, of much pagan practice and much worship of false gods and, and literally had become a spiritual stronghold for many Many religions and, and, and teachings that, that led people away from God, not closer to him. And the leader of the church became a martyr, one of the first martyrs of that region. It's church history records that, that Antipas was literally roasted within a brass bull. He enclosed him in a black brass bull and roasted him alive as part of his punishment for being a believer and a leader of the church of Jesus Christ. So you can imagine the, the stress that would be on those to profess Christ. You know, in this day, uh, you can ask anybody on the street, are you a Christian? And they can say yes, and that can mean a lot of different things. In this day, it, to say yes meant that you would literally be willing to take your life, that your life was on the line. And, and if you said yes, you better make sure you knew exactly what you were saying because you could be saying yes to the very wrong person that could lead you down the same fate as Antipas, the leader of the church in Pergamum. And I love what Jesus says here. In, in, in Revelation 1, we see Jesus envisioned as the victorious one. He holds the seven stars in his hand, which is the seven churches. He holds the seven candlesticks. He is walking among them. He is present in the suffering and in the, the reality of the church and where it was at. His face is shining like the sun. His, his hand is holding the church and he is, he is ministering to the body of Christ. And Jesus sends a message to his church and he says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. I know that you're living in the most difficult city possible. You're living in the most difficult circumstances that you could ever be part of or that you could ever be centered in. And what I love is that Jesus, he, he gives his words to help and to strengthen his church. It must have been so encouraging for the church to hear Jesus's words. I know where you are. I know where you are. I see you. Those words, I see you, so powerful, so meaningful. It's often that, that feeling of being seen, noticed, and, and acknowledged that is what makes such a lasting impression on you. Think of the teachers in your life that made an impact in your life. Chances are it wasn't because they were really good at explaining, you know, the issues of calculus. And it most likely wasn't their ability to help you understand the use of adjectives and pronouns. And it wasn't their prowess in Canadian geography that impressed you. 
It wasn't even their ability to explain things to you that you didn't understand in science, you know, how chemicals work together and the periodic table. The, the teacher that impressed you and made an impact on you was someone who made you felt seen and heard. The teachers that come back to mind or the people in your life that made the greatest impact didn't necessarily have college degrees, and maybe they did, but that wasn't why they made an impact in your life. They made an impact in your life because they saw you and they heard you. They listened. They cared. And Jesus steps on the bow of, of eternity and looks out over the realm of his church and he says, I see you where you're sitting. You're seated in the, in the midst of the throne room of Satan himself. I'm so comforted to know this morning that Jesus sees his church. The, Bible, the, the song says he's got the whole world in his hand. I much prefer the, the vision of Revelation. He's got the whole church in his hand. I'm not saying that God isn't in control of the world and, and God isn't working in the world, but he's working in the world through the church. God is working and, and interacting with the world on behalf and through and, and with the agency of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and yes, the church is made up of humans who are fallible and sometimes we get it wrong and sometimes we make mistakes. But at the end of the day, when we see Jesus in the book of Revelation, he's holding the church in his hand, the true church, the church that is bought with his blood, that is called by his name, that is filled with the spirit, the church that is walking with him and those who are coming into the church, he's got them in the palm of his hands. He sees you where you are. He's keenly aware of the opposition you face in your home. He's keenly aware of the opposition you face on your job. He's aware of what you face at your school, who your friends are, what you're struggling with. He even sees you in the opposition you may even face in your local church or when you go to pray, the spiritual battles that you face. The, I, I'm convinced that the battlegrounds of the spirit world uh, are right here between my two ears. Where the battle is lost and fought and won is right here between my two ears in my mind. Uh, the mind is the battleground of the soul. And oftentimes it's the, what we think and how we think and how we, how we process things that, that determines how we act and how we live. But I want you to know that Jesus sees you. He sees you when you're fasting. He sees you when you're praying. He sees you when you're crying. He sees you when you're laughing. He sees you when you're struggling. He sees you when you're selfless. And he sees you, yes, even when we're sometimes selfish. He knows every hair that's numbered on your head and even the lack thereof. He, he knows. He takes care. He ministers. He meets needs. He's with you even to the end of the age. When the age changes, when the world uh, systems, political systems drop uh, beneath our feet and everything is uncertain and everything that we thought we could trust in and rely on, now we question and we're suspicious of and we're, we're, we're you know, you know uh, conspiracy after conspiracy and uh, situation after situation in the government world that just 
continually crops up and you think, man, we've got a good leader now and then they, they rise up and they say, oh, you know what, i got to resign because of such and such and so and so. And, and we're left with this constant state of flux in our world where, where, where leaders rise and leaders fall and world powers rise and world powers fall and threats of war today and earthquakes tomorrow. And everything is uncertain in this world, but when we come into the house of God, we stand on the foundation which is Jesus Christ who holds us in his hand and we can have confidence in him. It's not the enemy without that you need to be afraid of. What Jesus was trying to say is you're in Pergamum. Pergamum, you're the church in the center of Satan's throne room and you are okay. Because Jesus said it's my church that's going to be pressing on the gates of hell and the gates shall not prevail against the church. Jesus tells us in that very passage in Matthew 16 that the church is the aggressor in the conflict, not the other way around. Please stop calling the church small. Please stop calling even this church a small church. I, I, I have to correct myself when I hear myself Oh, but we're a small church. No, we're part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his church is not small. His church is impacting the world on a grand scale. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Please don't belittle the church. Please don't put down the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's the church that Jesus said will press on and push against the gates of hell and the gates will have to yield to the pressure the church puts on Satan's kingdom. You have to understand in the context of what Jesus is talking about, every city that existed was, was existed by a wall and a gate. If you did not have a wall and a gate, you did not have a city. Today, you can come and go in between various cities and not even know that you've passed one. You can go through the four corners of Little Orangeville and pass through it. and You can blow through the red light and never know you even passed a city or a village. Or you can go through Toronto and feel like you're never going to get to the other side of this massive metropolis. It, you know, cities, you can come and go. But in Jesus' day, cities were walled and gated. And Jesus said, he said, the kingdom of hell is there. It's present. It's prevalent. It's, it's able to do much damage. But the church is going to press on the gates of hell. This indicates to us, first of all, that hell is not going to launch an attack that the church has not already countered. Hell is not going to be able to defeat what Jesus wants to do because Jesus is doing something through his church that's already coming to where hell is. Hell is not on the offense. Hell is on the defense. When the church is at the move, and what am I saying? speaking about. I'm not talking about political reform. I'm not talking about getting a bunch of picket lines and lining up and down the street on certain days of the year. I'm not talking about going and protesting down at Queen Street. I'm not talking about any of those sorts of things. But when you tell somebody about the love of Jesus Christ, you are pressing on the gates of hell in that person's life. You are pressing on the strongholds of Satan in that individual's life. When you tell someone they can be free of addiction, that they can experience the power of God and they can feel the touch of the spirit you are pressing on the gates of hell and the Bible says that the gates cannot prevail against the church 
When you pray for that lost loved one, when you pray for that individual, you're pressing on the gates of hell. When you're witnessing, when you're living your life before the Lord in kindness and meekness and in the fruit of the Spirit, you are pressing on the gates of hell. You're putting pressure. It's funny how when things seem to be going well and you see God's hand working, the enemy does launch a counterattack. Jesus did not tell his church to be afraid of the outward attacks of the enemy. They were sitting in the seat of Satan, he said. You're you're sitting right where Satan's throne is in Pergamum. There is a massive stronghold of satanic activity in the spirit world. Jesus is indicating to us that behind every system, there is a shadowy figure that controls things from behind the scene. It's the man behind the curtain. It's it's not the people. Paul reminded the church in Ephesians, he said, you're not wrestling with flesh and blood enemies. when When you come up against opposition in the work you're doing for the kingdom of God, you're not wrestling with flesh and blood. When you tell someone about Jesus and they resist it, that's not them resisting. There is a spiritual force that's motivating them to resist. And, and Paul said, don't worry. Don't argue. Don't fight. Don't wrestle with other human beings as it pertains to the kingdom of God. You've got to go in prayer and wrestle with the spirit world. You've got to pray that God would send light into their life and open up their eyes so that they can see and pray off of them the forces that would keep them blind and trapped in their deception. So the enemy is not from without. The enemy is actually from within. Revelation 2:14 Jesus addresses the church. He commends them for standing strong in Pergamum amidst all of the paganism, amidst all of the influence and pressure. He says, "I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam." who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Quick, quick rewind to the Old Testament here. Jesus is reminding the church of a story out of the Old Testament. The Jews had left Egypt after 400 plus years of slavery to Pharaoh. God delivered them back to Israel, their homeland, then known as Canaan. After 40 years of traveling, they finally arrive at the edge of this land of promise that God had given to their forefathers. Moab was one of the reigning kingdoms at the time. They were terrified of being destroyed along with the rest of Canaan. And so the king of Moab, Balak, sends for a nondescript prophet named Balaam. Balaam appears to be a prophet of many flavors, perhaps multiple gods and deities that he served, and it was his livelihood to prophesy and speak on behalf of these gods. And Balaam comes to Balak, and he says, "What what do you need? And Balak says, Behold, in Numbers 22, verse 5, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth, and they're dwelling opposite to me. Come now and curse them. Curse these people for me, since they're too mighty for me. Just know that when the devil looks at you, he thinks in his heart of hearts that you are indeed too mighty for him. When Satan surveys 
the status of your spiritual walk and your life. He, not, he doesn't necessarily look at who you are at the moment, but he sees your potential. He sees that if you would just recognize who you are in Christ and, and get a hold of what Jesus has done for you and let that permanently deeply affect your life and how you live, there would be no stopping your influence against his plans and against his kingdom to keep people bound in sin. And so when the devil looks at the church, much like Balak looking at the people of Israel, he says, they're too numerous for me. Curse them for me because I can't do it. So Balaam, Balaam tries and he said, I can't do it. He gets up and he tries to curse the people of Israel and God says to Balaam, you shall not go with them, you shall not curse the people for they are blessed. And when Balaam opens his mouth to curse the people, a blessing comes out of his mouth because you cannot curse what God has blessed. You cannot curse what God, the devil cannot, no weapon, the Bible says, formed against you shall prosper. He can try, he can work against what God is trying to do in your life, but he will eventually fail because if God has placed his blessing on you and you are submitted to God, then the blessing that comes will be the, 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 the curse that comes will turn into a blessing on the way. Balaam sought to curse and eventually he said, Balak, can't do it. I've tried three times and it won't work. Every time I open my mouth to curse, a blessing comes out instead. And so Balak says, Balaam, what are we going to do? How, how is this going to do this? How is this? How, I've got to defeat these people. And Balaam gave advice to the king of Moab in verse 16 of chapter 31. He said, behold these on Balaam's advice, he caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. In the incident of Peor, and so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. What, what Balaam and Balak decided to do is that instead of cursing them outright, they sought to deceive them from the inside. And so Balak sent people, lewd women, the Bible says, into the city to tempt the men and the women of that area. He sent them idols and in gifts of enticements of this world to weaken their faith from the inside. Balaam and Balak worked not to curse them from the outside, but to rot them from the inside by sending a, 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 a host of people in there to lead the people of Israel to sin against God. And Balaam knew, Balak knew, that if we can get the people to turn their hearts away from God, then the blessing will cease to be applied to their life and a curse will take its place. Balaam, I won't even have to stand up and curse them. They will be cursing themselves. The enemy was not from without the camp. The enemy was from within. The enemy was the enemy of compromise. The enemy was the enemy of allowing a little bit of the world to seep in to the life of the people of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 12, gives us a command, a warning, and a promise. Command is don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the, that's the warning and the command all in one. 
Don't be conformed to this world. The word conformed there means to be molded or shaped. Because there's no doubt the world is putting pressure on us to conform. From everything to the ads that are on your cereal boxes and in your magazines and in your stores, walk down the aisles of your stores and, and you, if you go down those aisles with open eyes, you'll see that the world is constantly telling you what you need to buy. To look beautiful, to be beautiful, you need this. And if you don't have it, the implied message is you're not. Right? Uh, uh, you want to be happy? Drink this drink. You want to be uh, uh, full of vim and vigor? Chew this piece of gum. Right? You want to kiss somebody and make them feel like they floated off into the third heavens? Then chew this piece of gum. What kind of a ridiculous notion is that? But we buy it lock, stock, and barrel because it's on a fancy, cool ad, right? You know, uh, uh, eat this kind of cereal, and you are going to be full of energy, and you are going to be like an athlete. You eat Vector, you pour it, and you get that anger face. You pour it like you're angry into your bowl, and you eat it like, like they do in the commercial, and you walk out feeling like you are a muscle man or a muscle woman, and you can be a, the next Olympic athlete until you look in the mirror and you go, oh, it's the same old body. That I woke up with this morning eating that bowl of vector cereal didn't change anything. But what's going on? It's, I'm just trying to illustrate for you. The world is constantly trying to mold and shape in every way possible. Watch a show on Disney Plus and Prime and all this. And there's going to be messages come your way. There's going to be things that are trying to mold and shape you into saying, this is okay. This is okay. This kind of lifestyle is okay and acceptable. And the Word of God is saying, no, it's a slippery slope into destruction. Don't go there. Amen. The world is constantly saying, be conformed, be conformed. Do this. It's the right thing. It's the right way. But Romans 12 urges you, be transformed. The word there is to be meta is the same word we use for metamorphosis. It's it's the going into a secret and disclosed and quiet place and exiting that quiet place a different thing than you went into. The caterpillar goes into the privacy and the secrecy and the darkness of the cocoon and there he is transformed and he comes out of, of that cocoon a butterfly. He went in a caterpillar and he comes out a butterfly and you go into your prayer closet alone and you go into your time of devotion alone with the word of God and you get in there by yourself. Jesus says go by yourself alone and don't let the, the, the people know what you're doing but the father who sees in secret will reward you openly get into that secret place with God and be transformed by the renewing of your mind the word renewing of your mind that phrase means change the way you think change your thought patterns address the the the, the strongholds that are here between your two ears change the way you think when you change the way you think you can then, then at that moment when your thought patterns are changed, you can test and discern what is the will of God. But you cannot know, test, or discern what God's will is for your life before you enter that secret place and allow your thoughts to be transformed and changed by the word of God. It's only then that you can prove what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Then you're equipped to know what is godly, what is good, what is right, what is healthy. 
James 4, 4 addresses this. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I don't mean being friends with people in the world, but being a friend to the system of the world, the system of the age. Whatever the age is, whether it's this age or the age 25 years ago, 50 years ago, it doesn't matter. God says if you're a friend to the age, to what the world teaches and preaches is good and okay. What the world teaches and preaches is okay. What the age, what the culture, what the city, what the area, what the region, what your your nationality, what your home country said was okay. is If it doesn't align with the word, then it's all in the same boat. God says you cannot be friends with that way of thinking because it's going to put you at odds with the way God does things. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. God opposes the proud, verse 6, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What is my approach? My approach is to come to the Word and say, God, Let your word direct me. What does the Bible say? What does God's word have to say? Now, I I know this might seem like hard preaching this morning. This might seem like direct and pushing back, and, and it is. To some degree, it is that. But what kind of pastor wouldn't stand before people, or what kind of individual would not stand before someone in the middle of oncoming traffic and warn them there's danger here. I'm here to stand as a a flag before the people to say, look, the world is not your friend. The world does not have your best interests at heart. God does. The one who formed you in the belly. The one who formed you in the womb. And the Bible says who knit you together in your mother's womb. The one who spoke and created and and ordered the universe. The one who decided the color of your hair and decided your personality traits and your eye color and what your voice would sound like and what kind of talents and abilities you had. The one who allowed those things to be decided is the one who stands to, to direct you through his word, through the scripture. You can trust him. And if you come to him with humility to say, I don't know all what's right and wrong, but I come to you to know, then you can can follow the path of the wise and the prudent. And I please, if there's any questions you have about, okay, pastor, you know, this is, and everything I'm saying today is high level. What I mean, it's, I'm not getting down into the specifics and the nitty gritty of life because we literally could be here all day, right? I let the Holy Ghost apply personally. And what's going on right now, let me just just pull back the curtain and let you know what God's doing in this moment. While I'm speaking the Word of God, the Spirit of God is addressing specific things for you personally. So I could go and try to outline a bunch of personal applications and literal applications to the word and I would be taking over the job of the spirit of God who is at this moment tugging at your heart and and sometimes it feels like a prick it feels like something that irritates it feels like something that annoys because the word of God is meant to do that 
If God's word doesn't prick and poke and prod us into thought and question, then it's not doing its job. There was a point where Paul met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and God says, Paul, it's been a hard journey for you. You've been kicking against the pricks. What he was saying there, back in those days, they used sharp sticks to poke and prod cattle and sheep along. If they were stopped and stubborn and stuck in one place, the, the, the herder would get a sharp stick and poke the backside of that, that mule, that donkey, that, that, that animal, to get them to move on. And if the animal was insistent and stubborn, they would kick back at that prick. They would kick back at that goad because they didn't want to move. And God finally knocked Paul off the horse, blinded him, and put him on the ground in a bit of a chokehold spiritually and said, Paul, I've had to knock you off your horse because you're kicking against the pricks. What God was saying is, Paul, you've been reading my law for years and there's been something under the, the getting under your skin. Every time you opened the scroll and you read what my word said, something irritated you inside, but you kicked against it. You ignored it. And now you're fighting against me by persecuting my church. Paul, you've been kicking against the pricks long enough. It's time to you to come face to face with the one who said the words that are bothering you in the first place. What I'm trying to urge you to do this morning is don't kick against the pricks of conviction in your heart. Address them. Embrace them. Ask questions about them. Ask hard questions about them. Come to pastor. Let's have a Bible study. Let's open up the word and see what the word of God has to say for your life. That's the proper response to when the word convicts and pricks and irritates our heart because God is trying to lovingly. God didn't embarrass you this morning. He didn't call your sin out publicly. He did not lay it out on the, on the wall. He did not take his finger and write down your name and then list everything that you're struggling with. By his grace and his mercy, he's spoken to you in a language that nobody else could hear and nobody else can discern. I don't know what God is speaking to you this morning, but I know what I feel in the Spirit, and I can feel the Spirit of the Lord pulling and drawing and working and speaking. And when God speaks to you, sometimes it irritates you. Sometimes it bothers you. Sometimes it pricks you. Sometimes it's like a hug. Sometimes it's warm because a loving father will do that to his children. He'll reach and reach and reach and reach. Submit yourselves, therefore, unto God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw. What does drawing near look like, Pastor? Drawing near looks like opening up your Bible and saying, all right, God, you're irritating me. Let's get this worked out. There is, I'm telling you, there is no better attitude that you can have than to say, I'm irritated with what Pastor had to say this morning. I'm getting into the Word, and I'm going to find out what God says. There is no better response you could have to the, to the things that, that are pricking your heart this morning than to find it in the Word for yourself. There is no better thing you could do than to sit down and say, Pastor, I don't understand and I'm pretty, pretty irritated with what I heard this morning. Something bothered me. Something troubled my heart. There is no better response for you to say, I want to know more. I want to learn. I want to grow. The worst thing you can do is to compromise and say, well, I don't like it, so I'm just going to throw it out. We live in a world where if you don't like something, you just turn it off. 
And if you don't like what someone's saying, you attack them personally and cancel them. You cancel their account. You don't like their opinion. You don't like what they have to say. Cancel account. Delete. Interfere. Abstain. No, they're, they're saying hate speech. And I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. I just know this is, this is the culture. You've got to be careful what you say online because you can get canceled. If, if people don't like what you have to say, they'll call you intolerant. They'll call you all kinds of things. They'll label you. Why? Because we don't live in a conversation-style community anymore where we have conversations and we agree to disagree, but we're still friends and we still love one another. We may have differing opinions, but we can be kind to each other and still treat each other like decent human beings. We don't live in that kind of culture anymore, but the church needs to be the place where we can have open conversations. But truth will always carry confrontation along with it. Truth and confrontation are best friends. They hold hands and they walk down the street together. But without grace and mercy bonding them together, truth can be like a battering ram. Truth can be like a knife to the heart. So grace and mercy come and couple together with truth to bring it about in a loving and appealing way. Truth demands confrontation. Loving confrontation but confrontation nonetheless. A.W. Tozer was known to be said, a new decalogue has been adopted by neo-Christians of our day. Thou shalt not disagree. And a new set of beatitudes, blessed are they that tolerate everything, for they shall not be made accountable. Truer words were never spoken. Why so, why so hard, Pastor? Why so passionate on this? Because Jesus was passionate this was a letter to the church. This was a letter to the church. He said to his church, you have allowed Balaam and Balak to preach in your congregation. You've allowed them to come in and tell you that everything is okay. You've allowed the doctrine of the Nicolaitans to come in your midst and become the, the holders of the microphone in your pulpit. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans said that because Jesus gives us grace and mercy, Sister Bryson, you can come. Because Jesus offers grace and mercy, we don't have to worry about sin. We can do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, and nobody can tell us any different. Jesus said, you've allowed this thing that I hate into my church, sacrificing to idols, practicing sexual immorality. And if you don't repent, he said, I'm going to war against you with the sword of my mouth. That sounds pretty dramatic. But if you read the rest of Revelation, you'll find out that what Jesus is talking about is his word will stand the tests of time. And you can call something truth for the rest of your life, but it will not make the lie into a truth. What will stand the test of time and what will outlive your definition of truth will be truth itself. And Jesus said, the words of my mouth will defeat every lie one of these days. We will be held accountable for what we believe and what we preach and what we teach. Let's make sure it lines up with what God's Word says. We stand this morning. Why don't we take some time to pray and talk to the Lord? God's Word is alive and active. The Bible calls it a two-edged sword. Sometimes it cuts both ways. It cuts in both directions. A sword is 
is useful in these cases because sometimes the Word of God is like a scalpel. It'll cut out a tumor that needs to be removed. And while it may hurt, it never kills or does harm. The Word will bring life to you. You can trust. The Bible says you can trust the wounds of a friend. And there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. His name is Jesus this morning. If there's something in your life, something in your heart that God is working on and tugging at, respond to that in prayer for now. Respond to Him in, in talking to Him and asking Him, Lord, help me. Help me to grow in my walk with you. Help me to grow in my understanding. You're not going to get everything perfect. You're not going This isn't a perfect church. We're not made of perfect people. We're imperfect people that are looking to a perfect God and asking for His strength and direction and help. God will help you. God loves you. God wants to have a walk with you and a relationship. It's all I need. He's all.